Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm going to be changing things up a little bit with these next two episodes. I decided I needed to give a couple of other lectures before we go on to more with literary theory. So today I'm going to be covering uh, logical fallacies and then inductive and deductive logic, basically how to make a good argument. And then with the next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, how to pre-read a book and also how to do research. If you're having to do a research paper or if you're just looking into a topic that you're interested in. Uh, After that, we'll go back to cultural criticism and do a couple of episodes on that. But as I've kind of mentioned in a few of my episodes, one of the things when you want to make an argument for your reading of a particular work, whether you're doing Marxist, feminist, cultural, psychological, is you want to be able to come up with evidence and then back up that evidence. So a lot of what we're going to do the next couple of episodes is going to deal with how do you do things like that. So let's get started on today's, um, and I want to start with logical fallacies. Now logical fallacies are ways of making arguments that are not valid. They give you persuasive arguments, but they're not giving you the right kind of information in order to make a decision on something. They're manipulations. Um, They tend to either manipulate the way the human brain works or they manipulate uh, the, the person emotionally. So they're not giving you good information. And logical fallacies are generally going to be, as we talk about them, you're going to figure out the basis of all of the arguments you run into when you see advertising or political speeches for the most part. They're very light on actual logic and facts, very heavy on logical fallacies. One of the first things to remember when we talk about logical fallacies is that true or false is not relevant. Um, A logical fallacy may turn out to be true, or it may turn out to be false. The problem with it is that it didn't give you the right kind of information you needed to determine if it's true or false. It kind of uses tricks on you instead. So you may have a logical fallacy that does indeed turn out to be something that is true, but you would need other kinds of information in order to prove it's true. Now I'm going to go through the list of quite a few logical fallacies, just so you get a little bit of sense of what they are and when you, when you run them into them, how to recognize them. The first one is called a hasty generalization. Hasty generalization is when you have too little information or too small of a sampling in order to make the conclusion you've come up with. Um, you had a bad experience with a man or a woman one time, and therefore all men or women are bad. Um, This is a hasty generalization. You're taking a very limited sampling and then trying to make the argument that this applies to everyone. Now, these can even be larger than just one or two instances. For example, uh, if you find a hundred people that have died of a disease and now you've made the generalization that this is the most deadly disease, the worst disease on the planet, a hundred people dying of something is a very insignificant number statistically when you look at the number of people in the world, which is uh, approaching 8 billion, and you look at all of the other ways people have died. If only 100 people have died of this disorder, then it's a pretty minor thing. Uh, More people die in bathtubs um, than that. More people die of their home than that, in their home than that. 
So a hasty generalization takes too few instances and tries to make it seem like it's a universal property. These are generally done when people give testimonials. Uh, they'll say, you know, in my experience, I did such and such, and it didn't work for me, or it did work for me, therefore this is a great thing, or this is a terrible thing. Um, a single testimonial is not enough to prove something, because the person's experience may have been way outside of the ordinary. The next one I want to talk about is called the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. Um, this is scary sounding in Latin, but basically this is your faulty cause and effect. Humans are hardwired to see things in cause and effect. We are hardwired, um, even lower animals than humans are hardwired for this. Anything or anyone that is able to learn is hardwired to see cause and effect. If your dog touches her nose to the oven door and burns it, the dog will shy away from the oven in the future. They have that cause and effect thinking. If I touch my nose to this door, it hurts. Don't do that. So it's very hardwired into us. We always see the world in cause and effect. But the way that the uh, fallacy works is that it looks at one event and then an event that follows and says, therefore, the first event caused the second event. Now again, remember we said this could be true or false. You don't have enough information to make that decision. You would need some of the information in between the first event and the second event that connects the two together. You know, you'll have things where someone will be elected mayor and then the city goes bankrupt. And a faulty cause and effect argument would be so-and-so was elected, the city went bankrupt, that person bankrupted the city. And this could be true or it could be false. Perhaps the mayor came into office and decided to buy a new mayor's mansion for $100 million and then remodeled his office downtown for $50 million and decided he needed a city boat and bought a $30 million yacht, and now the city's out of money. But see, that cause and effect is giving you a string in between the person getting elected and the city going bankrupt. To just say this person gets elected and the city went bankrupt means they caused it, you don't have enough information to jump to that conclusion. Because it could be that the mayor takes over and six days later the city is bankrupt because all of the mayors before him had been cooking the books and hiding and stealing money and hiding expenses and things like that so that no matter what this person did, six days the city would be out of money. So faulty cause and effect is easy to slip by people. You know, one thing happens, then something else happens. Our brain is hardwired to connect it and say, yes, these two things are indeed um, connected. <clears throat> the next one I want to talk about is kind of an extreme version of the faulty cause and effect. It's called the slippery slope. You know, this is one of those fallacies that basically ends with if we do this, everything in society will collapse and it will be the extinction of the human race. Now again, this may be true, or it may be false, but it plays on fear instead of giving you facts. If you want to prove that we do a particular thing and that leads to the end of the world, you have to show how. You have to give the actual steps of how this behavior would end up making that uh, a reality. To just say, if we do this, all 
you know, hell is going to break loose is basically the uh, definition of the slippery slope. What amuses me is that people will often say, uh, we shouldn't do that because it's a slippery slope. And first thing I think of is, oh, so you're admitting you're using fallacies to make your point and you don't really have a good argument. Um, so slippery slopes are definitely going to be things you see in politics. You know, if we elect this person, it's the end of the world. If we elect this person, life as you know it will never be the same. Um, again, that may be true or false, but you have to give some more proof than that. Uh, weak or false analogy. Uh, we often argue by analogy in order to explain something that can't be seen. So we would like to explain it. Uh, for example, the old analogy with atomic theory um, that they would give an atom being kind of like uh, a planet uh, or a, a sun with little planets revolving far away from it in uh, different at different lengths. That would be the electrons. Uh, this model is no longer what they use. Electrons are more described as almost like a, a cloud. But the analogy was made so that you could visualize something that couldn't be visualized. Um, you were not able to see atoms. They're too tiny even under a microscope. Um, but you can visualize what a ball in the center with things orbiting around it would look like. So that's an example of why we use analogies. Sometimes they are beneficial. Uh, faulty analogy is something that the two things have very little in common, um, and yet we make an analogy. Uh, I was... Uh, hmm, let's see, this is a tough one to come up with the top of your head. Uh, someone is comparing uh, the experience they had in high school with bullies with international politics. This would be an example of a faulty analogy. My experience with bullies in high school told me that when it comes to international politics, we should behave in these certain ways, these same ways. Uh, this may or may not be true, but these things are different enough that they are not able to make a clear analogy. Um, the next one I want to talk about is an appeal to authority. And with the appeal to authority, you have to be careful. Because just because someone is an authority in one field does not make them an authority in every field. And we often see appeals to authority with things like celebrity endorsements. Your favorite actor or actress or singer or musician or uh, artist um, says that such and such person is the best candidate for president. Well, this person is not an authority on political science. Um, they may be an authority on acting or music or art, but they're not an authority in the other field. You know, Tiger Woods at one time was endorsing Buicks. Um, Tiger Woods is not a proper authority to endorse Buicks, at least not as far as I know. Now, if Tiger Woods wants to tell me how to swing a golf club, which clubs are the best, um, which golf shoes are the best, how to improve my game... I'll be all ears because he's an expert in those fields. But as far as I know, he doesn't have a degree in mechanical engineering. He hasn't spent a lot of time tearing apart cars and putting them together and knowing which cars perform better. 
He's an expert in one field that they've used as an expert in another field. Uh, this can even be things that are somewhat closer. Uh, let's say you have someone who is an expert uh, in psychology, and then they start giving opinions about um, uh, what is the best treatment for cancer or what is the best treatment for a particular virus. You know, these are areas that, yes, they are experts in their field, but these are areas outside of their field. So you really have to be careful with appeals to authority. Appeal to authority can be genuine if that person is actually an authority in the field where they're giving their testimonial. <clears throat> the next one I want to talk about is ad populum. Ad populum is an argument that basically is your old-fashioned bandwagon or everybody's doing it argument. You know, you don't want to be left behind. Everybody's doing this. You want to do this too. You want to drink this drink because you'll be lonely and sad if you don't drink this drink. Um, this is playing on our fears of isolation. One of the biggest fears that people have is that they will be all alone, they will have no companionship, no friends, no anything. Uh, isolation is one of the worst things you can do to a human. Uh, in fact, this is why it's considered a, an extreme form of torture under international law. When you are completely deprived of the presence of others and isolation, humans tend to break down and degenerate mentally very, very quickly. Someone who could be healthy mentally one day, put them in solitary confinement and not let them see another person for three, four months or a year, um, that person may not be even close to the same person as when they went in. So ad populum arguments always play on that fear. Oh, I better do this. Everyone else is doing this. I don't want to be the fool who's not doing it. Uh, the next one is called an ad hominem fallacy. The ad hominem fallacy is when you attack a person instead of an idea. Um, the problem with this is that a person may be a bad person and still have a good idea, or a person may be a good person and still have a horrible idea. You know, if I were going to make an ad hominem argument, let's say against vegetarianism, I can say vegetarianism is evil because Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian. Now, this is true, he was a vegetarian. But just because a person who is bad and who has done a lot of bad things does something doesn't necessarily mean that thing is bad. If I actually wanted to make an argument against or for vegetarianism, I would have to make the argument based on nutritional facts. You know, does the person get all of the nutrients that they need? Um, you know, what are the health benefits? What are the health risks? But see, lay, laying all of that out gives you actual information. That's not just attacking someone instead of their idea, saying they're a, they're a bad person, they have that idea, therefore that idea is bad. You know, um, arguments are made like this in politics all the time. Bill Clinton was a horrible president, he cheated on his wife. He may or may not have been a horrible president. Um, cheating on his wife says he was a horrible husband, you could make that argument. Um, but if you want to say he was a horrible president, you have to actually look at his policies and how they worked out when they were implemented. That would be an argument that would give you whether or not he was a horrible president or a great president. So that's an ad hominem. It attacks a person 
instead of attacking the idea. <clears throat> Appeals to pity. Um, these are ones you see uh, quite frequently in commercials for uh, abused and abandoned animals, for uh, people starving in other countries. Um, they show lots of sad images. They get, they get you feeling sad, and then they put out their hand and ask for some money. Now, again, whether or not that money is going to help the people or the animals, that's a different argument, and how that money would help the people or help the animals. Um, because when they just give you the uh, pictures and the video and show you these horrible conditions and say, give us money, um, they're not telling you what that money necessarily is going to do. You know, what does my $20 a month exactly go for? How much of it goes for this? How much of it goes for this? How much of it goes for this? You know, these are the kinds of things that um, would be a better argument that would give you more of a logical basis. You know, it costs X amount of dollars to um, rescue these animals and feed them and give them medicine. We need this number of donors uh, in order to have that amount of, uh, of money. So the appeal to pity just skips all of that and says, look at these sad pictures, send me money. Uh, and uh, in fact, there have been quite a few charities who have done this, and almost none of the money goes to what the people gave it for. Most of the money goes to the people who ran the charities. So if you're going to convince me um, to give money to a charity to help people, the way to do it would be to show me exactly what this money is going for and how it's going to help. Uh, this is also, <clears throat> uh, there's another side to this. Uh, there's also an, a fallacy called an appeal to vanity. This is when someone flatters you and you lower your guard and then they slip in some idea. Uh, appeals to vanity are really one of the biggest tools of con artists. You know, con artists will make you think they're your best friend. They'll make you feel so good about yourself. And then they'll steal your money or steal your vote. Um, they are playing on people like to be appreciated. People like to be, to feel like they're, you know, beautiful, smart, uh, whatever. And so they will use these things in order to uh, get you to do what they want. You know, if I were to say, wow, you're the best looking person I've ever seen, I just can't believe how amazing you are. And good looking people are always going to vote for me. You know, I, I've, I've asked for your vote. I've flattered you, so you lowered your guard. But did I tell you anything about what I plan to do? What are my policies? Why should you vote for me? Other than I made you feel good for five minutes about yourself. <clears throat> uh, okay, the next one is appeal to ignorance. Um, this is when you, uh, when there's a something that there is no definitive answer, and they can't prove it uh, how something occurs, and it, it generally falls under a religious argument. You know, science can't explain all of where life come fr com comes from, so God must exist. These are two separate arguments. Whether or not science can explain anything is one argument, and whether or not God exists is a separate argument. Um, just because you don't know how something works doesn't mean someone can just substitute 
a reason for it. For example, I'm not 100%. I have a vague idea of how cell phones work, but not 100%. Um, but if someone says, well, you don't understand how it works, so therefore it's magic. Uh, no, it, it, it's not magic. It, there are physical properties. I may just not understand them or other humans may not understand them at the moment. Uh, it doesn't mean you can jump to the conclusion and then fill in something else. <clears throat> the straw man is the next fallacy. This is where you take your opponent's weakest argument and tear it apart and say, therefore, you have refuted their whole side. Um, this is this is taking one of their minor points, usually, uh, or taking one of their points to an extreme and then saying this extreme point is foolish. Therefore, the entire side of the argument is foolish and I've disproven it. Uh, and the answer to that is no, you may have disproven that one point about their side, but you haven't disproven the entire argument that they have. You just picked a weak part of the argument that was easy to knock down and you knocked it down. That's why it's called a straw man. It's like you've built up a straw man and then pushed it over and said, look how, look how strong I am. I knocked it over with ease. Um, red herring is the next fallacy I want to talk about. A red herring fallacy is a distraction. Red herrings often come in the form of words that are heavily emotionally loaded. And there's a lot of words that are like that, both negative and positive uh, loading emotionally. Uh, if someone is wanting to uh, hold up an idea, they might use terms like patriotic or democratic um, or freedom, or free. Uh, you know, the, these words um, are used that have very emotional uh, connections, and yet they don't have much to do with the argument that's trying to be made. For example, if I were running for mayor, and I said, vote for me because that's the democratic thing to do. Well, yeah, uh, it is the democratic thing to do, but so is voting for my opponent. Um, I haven't given you any reason of why I'm going to be a good mayor. I just said it's democratic. Uh, and a lot of these words do not mean what you think they mean. They have very vague and generalized meanings. Uh, democratic, for one. And I'm talking about the ability to vote, not necessarily the Democratic Party. This is just talking about the general uh, idea that people vote. Uh, democratic doesn't necessarily mean things are... Uh, fair. For example, if I'm a dictator and I want to be um, the democratically elected president, I might let the people hold an election. And on election day, in the ballots, I tell them, um, you can vote for me for president or we're going to shoot you and your whole family right now. And surprise, surprise, everybody votes for me for president. Uh, I was democratically elected. No, I, I mean, it, I technically was democratically elected, but I don't think anybody would call that a fair democratic, fairly de democratically elected. Um, it doesn't even have to be as um, obvious as that. Let's say I'm the dictator of a country, and I say, okay, I'll let you uh, vote. You can choose me for your president because we're going to turn this into a democracy, or you can choose my opponent. And I, you know, let my opponent... Uh, run, let him talk, let him campaign, 
And then when it comes time to count the votes, uh, my cousins are the ones counting the votes. And so surprise, surprise, I won the election by a landslide because no matter what was marked on the paper, they said I got the votes. So words like that are not necessarily what you think they mean. They have very general, vague meanings, but they have a lot of emotional baggage. Patriotic is another one. You know, when people try to sway you to something, they say, do this because it's the patriotic thing. The problem with patriotic is that at base, it just means you love your country. It doesn't give you what you must do to love your country. Because two people can do the exact opposite and both legitimately claim to be patriots. You know, one person can say, I love my country, I'm patriotic, and whatever my government decides, I'm going to follow them 100% because I'm patriotic. And the person on the other side can say, I'm patriotic, I love my country, uh, but the government is made up of people, and if those people do things that are going to harm my country, then it's my duty to resist everything they want us to do. Both of these people are legitimately patriotic, because patriotic just means you love your country. The difference is how they feel you should behave. One feels the whatever the country does is automatically right. The other feels that if the people making the decisions are doing the wrong thing, they're harming the country, they're destroying my country. So these are uh, what are known as red herring fallacies. Um, the next one I want to talk about is often called uh, the either-or fallacy. <clears throat> the either-or fallacy is kind of a fallacy of oversimplification. And the way that it usually works is you try to make it appear like there are only two choices. Um, it, it has to be A or it has to be B. Those are the only options available. And generally the way they will do this is they will show, for example, all of the reasons why A is the wrong answer. And they'll give all kinds of arguments of why A is the wrong answer, and they'll say, therefore, it must be B. The problem with this is that um, they haven't proven B, because B could be equally or even a worse choice. Um, the, the, the best choice might be C, D, E, F, G, or a million other things that were never brought to your attention. So this is an oversimplification fallacy is how this works. It tries to put the world into it's either this or this and there are no other options. When in reality there may be thousands of options. Um, the last one I want to talk about of fallacies before I move into good logic is called begging the question. Um, this is also sometimes referred to as circular reasoning. And this basically works where the premise, which is the support you're using, and the conclusion are basically the same thing. They're reworded versions of each other. Um, for example, uh, I am the best candidate for mayor because there is no candidate better than I am. You know, my premise and my conclusion are the same. It basically says I'm the best because I'm the best, and my proof of that is I'm the best because I'm the best. Um, this is what's known as a as begging the question. Um, you assume that everyone has to agree with everything from the beginning, when actually what you might be giving is a very controversial. Uh, a lot of times this, will, this fallacy will be also using terminology like everyone knows. 
um, that such and such. Everyone believes that such and such, when in reality this is not the truth. Um, you're trying to prove that everyone believes it by saying everyone believes it, um, but that is not proof. Okay, now I want to move into good logic. Um, and good logic uh, is basically the things you want to stick to when you actually want to convince people um, with, with valid reasons instead of just manipulating how they think or manipulating them emotionally. Now, the ancient Greeks had three different parts of argument. Uh, for them, uh, their argument parts were ethos, pathos, and logos. Uh, ethos is your credibility as a speaker or as a writer. Uh, a lot of times professors will give a little self-introduction the first day of class, where they went to college, how many years they've taught, what they've studied. This is not done without a purpose. This is done to show you that this person has credibility. I do indeed have degrees in these areas. I have taught this before. I have done this before. You know, and it, it creates a sense that the audience can trust these people. You know, if a professor were to come in and go, you know, I've never even read a book and I have no idea why I'm here and uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. But uh, we're going to do some stuff and hopefully we kind of learn some stuff. If the professor came into that, their ethos would be zero. Most people would just leave the class and say, this person has no clue what they're talking about. I need to know this stuff. I'm going to find someone else. <clears throat> Pathos are generally appeals to emotion. And pathos a lot of times fall under the arguments we just talked about when we talked about logical fallacies. So often logical fallacies are used as pathos. Now to use a fallacy and other things is a little more forgivable but when you're only using the fallacy to um, convey the meaning, con to convey the idea, to convince people, uh, you're basically not giving them the right information. But sometimes pathos is needed to get people to understand why we need to do something about this. So pathos is often used as a motivating factor. Here are the, here are the facts, and now if we don't do this, we're going to lose everything we have. You know, you have to give somebody, give your audience a reason of why they should care about this topic, why they should go into this topic. Um, a pathos argument for listening to these lectures might be, um, you know, you don't want to be going through the war, you know, going through your life and making decisions that you really didn't make that everyone else has made for you. And you haven't really taken the time to be able to analyze things because uh, you were never given the proper tools. So that might be a pathos argument. <clears throat> I would still need other types of arguments to back that up, but pathos gives you a sense of, okay, yeah, this is something that is important to me and this is something I should do. Now, logos arguments are your hard facts, um, your statistics, your logic, your scientific experimentation. Um, these are all logos arguments. Um, and these are kind of what we're going to be going into uh, a little bit when we talk about logic. Um, one of the things that, since I brought up statistics, 
that I always have to caution people with is be very careful with sp statistics. Uh, statistics can be good or they can be completely useless. And there are several things that will determine this uh, if they're going to be good. One, did they do a large enough sampling in order for this statistic to be relevant? You know, I asked four people what the best song ever written was, and three of the four agreed and said this song was the best. Uh, you know, they said, you know, uh, uh, Let It Be by the Beatles was the best song ever written, and therefore 75% of the population thinks Let It Be by the Beatles is the best song ever written. This is not a significant number of people I've polled. I've polled four people. These four people cannot possibly represent the views of almost 8 billion people. So my survey sample is too small in that case. You have to have a large enough survey sample in order to have it be valuable. The other problem is sometimes people are polled who are not uh, chosen randomly. Uh, and that can make your statistics worthless as well. For example, if I went and stood outside of a church on Sunday morning, and as people come out of the church, I ask them the question, do you believe in God? Yes, mark down one for yes. Do you believe in God? Yes, mark down one for yes. Then lo and behold, about 99% of the people who came out of the church said, yes, they believe in God. Uh, even if there were 10,000 people in that church, um, this is not a valuable statistic because I surveyed them about God when they were coming out of church. This is obviously a group that's probably mostly going to believe in God, otherwise they wouldn't be going every Sunday. And I said 99% because you've always got the fool that's there to, uh, you know, pick up women or men or uh, has nothing better to do or their family makes them go. So the statistic in that case is, is pretty much useless because it it does not give you a random sampling. Um, you have to have a random sampling of people and you have to have a large enough sampling in order for statistics to be valuable. Uh, the other problem with statistics is you really have to look at how the questions are given to the people. Because a lot of times statistic questions are worded in ways that push people towards one answer or another. Um, you know, let's say I surveyed 100,000 people in a mall about the, whether, they, whether or not they believed in God. That's a random place. It's not a religious place. 100,000 people is a pretty good-sized sampling. Um, but let's say I worded the question of, um, do you believe in God or are you a devil worshiper? Now, most people are going to be pushed to saying, yeah, I believe in God. Again, a few are going to be saying, yeah, I'm a devil worshiper. Um, because the options they were given were very limited, and one of them seemed like a positive option that you were pushing them towards, and the other one seemed like a negative option. So all of these things can uh, make statistics uh, invalid. So be very careful when you use statistics. Uh, I want to go into now the two types of uh, logic. We have deductive and inductive. Um, we'll start with deductive. Deductive logic moves from general principles to try to give um, uh, conclusions about specifics. Um, deductive logic uh, is math. Math is an example of deductive logic. 
If I say 2 plus 2 equals 4, I have the general concept of 2 and what 2 means, the general concept of what plus means, the general concept of what equals means, and then the general concept of what 4 means. And in, an, in a deductive argument, if the premises are all true and the form is correct, the conclusion must be true. Deductive arguments can give you certainty. An example from, uh, from uh, ancient Greece is, you may have heard before, the argument about Socrates. You know, uh, all men are mortal is the first line of the argument. That's the first premise. Socrates is a man. That's the second premise. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. That's the conclusion. And to find out if your argument is going to hold up is first look at and see are the premises true. Are all men mortal? Yes, it just means all men are going to eventually die. That's all mortal means. Uh, was Socrates a man? Well, if you don't know who Socrates is, you can look him up and find out. Yes, indeed, he was an ancient Greek philosopher. He was a man, and he died. Therefore, is, if the form of this is correct, then we're going to have a conclusion that has to be true. In order to determine if the form is correct, you have to kind of turn it into what looks like an algebra problem. Um, so instead of saying uh, the names, you're going to substitute in letters. So when I say the first premise, all men are mortal, my first subject is men. So I can take that out and substitute A. Uh, my second uh, part of that is mortal. So I can take out mortal and substitute B. So now I've got a general mathematical statement. All A's are B's. Whatever we substitute in for A will always be B. Uh, then we go to our next uh, line. Socrates is a man. Well, Socrates is a third term, so we can call him C. Uh, and we've already said mortal is B, uh, so we can look at the whole structure of it. All A's are B's. C is a B. Therefore, C is an A. Um, and when you look at the form, that form is correct. Our premises were true, we have a valid and sound argument. You have to accept the conclusion of this. Now, the problem with deductive logic is that a lot of the questions that we answer and a lot of the things we explore are not reducible like this. They're much more complex. And we can't make a deductive argument that will give us certainty. And so we have to have a different type of logic that moves in a little bit different direction. We don't have the general terms that are already known and already accepted, so we have to go the other way and try to figure out what those general terms are. And the other type of logic is called inductive logic. And in inductive logic, you're moving from specifics to try to come up with a general rule. Now, most of the time in inductive logic, you can never get certainty. Um, you, you can never 100% prove, as you can with the deductive argument, that your conclusion is true. Um, but that doesn't mean that all arguments are the same. Um, 
you still are going to have some arguments that are much better than others, some arguments that are much stronger than others. The stronger arguments, the better arguments, are going to have more support. So the more that you can support something, the more likely your conclusion is to be true. And this is where we are with most of the questions. You know, what political system is best? What economic system is best? Who should you marry? What's the best flavor of ice cream? You know, all of these are things that you're not ever going to be able to come up with a deductively certain answer. You will still have room for disagreement. And this is why human life is messy. This is why we have disagreements. Because if everything was reducible to deductive logic, we could put it up on the board, everybody looks at it and says, yeah, that's what we have to adopt. Um, but it's not. You can have person A that gives a thousand true premises and says, therefore, A is the answer. And you can have person B who gives a thousand true premises and says, therefore, B is the answer. And generally what you're going to find is that these two people have focused on different areas. They may both still be giving you things that are true, but their focus is on something else. Um, so we do have areas where the likelihood that everyone will agree is pretty slim. But as I said, this isn't an invitation that, well, one opinion is as good as any other. This is not true. Some opinions are backed by a lot of facts, a lot of evidence, and some opinions are backed by almost nothing. Uh, for example, if I'm standing on the roof with someone else and that person says, I think if I jump off the roof, I will fly up into the sky because I just watched uh, Superman last night and that's what happened when he jumped off the roof. He's made an argument. He's used true premises. He did watch the movie. He did see Superman fly. Um, I look at that argument and say, okay, I believe if you step off the roof, you're going to splat on the sidewalk down there because of the laws of gravity. Because every time I've ever dropped something, unless it was filled with hydrogen or helium or something like that, it fell to the floor. Um, so I have a lifetime of observations of any time something goes off the edge of something, it falls down. <clears throat> so we both have the same argument, or we both have different arguments, I should say. Both have true premises, and we both came up with a conclusion. But one of those conclusions is much better um, than the other, because it has a lot more evidence and has a lot more facts behind it. Uh, now, this is, the, this is the part where logic gets a little tricky because there is a fallacy that I didn't cover because I wanted to wait until we got into this called the inductive fallacy. This is the fallacy that says just because something has always happened in the past does not mean it will always happen in the future. And the most famous example they give of this is of a turkey. A turkey comes out every morning of the uh, turkey house and the farmer feeds it. And this happens for hundreds of days in a row. Turkey walks out, there's the food. Turkey walks out, there's the food. So inductively, the turkey has the um, idea that this is always going to be the future. That every time I walk out of this door, I will be fed. 
The problem is, at some point, the farmer has raised the turkey as much as he's going to, and the turkey walks out to be fed and gets his head chopped off. So this is the inductive fallacy, that just because something has always occurred does not mean it will always occur. Now, this doesn't, again, mean that you can say, well, I might fly, so let's just try it. Uh, you're still much better off sticking to the best evidence you have. And this is all we're able to do as humans. Uh, we're able to make arguments and, and go with the best we have. Another point I want to bring up before I leave off about argument is that argument is not what most people think of as a fight. This is a wrong idea of argument. The type of argument I'm talking about is an academic-style argument. Um, in a fight, the argument is just, I want to get my way. That's all there is to it. An academic argument is something that benefits both sides if it's done correctly. If I'm making an argument in an academic sense, the thing I want the most is a bright person on the other side of that argument because I'm going to present my points and then that person is going to refute those points and present his or her points and then I'm going to refute and present more points and then they're going to refute and back and forth. And even if the end of this back and forth process, we don't agree still, we come away both knowing a lot more about the topic. They thought of things I had never thought of and I had to come up with, well, okay, what do I do with that idea? I came up with things they had never thought of and they had to come up with uh, solutions to that. So an argument done well is really in everybody's best interest because you are going to both walk away with a lot more knowledge about what's going on. Again, you may not, one side or another may not win out, but there's also the possibility that this opens up a third side. And as you're both arguing back and forth, you both start to realize, hey, wait, maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we should be doing C. Uh, and then you start the whole process over again. One person defending C and somebody picking up a, a D and, and arguing back and forth until you can see which one of those ideas plays out as stronger. So argument is a very effective tool. It helps you uh, progress as an individual and it helps societies progress as a whole. Because if they're done constructively, you end up with better educated and brighter people. Okay, and I am going to cut off for now. I apologize, I made this one of my longest episodes, but I hope you are all well and I will talk to you again soon.